The world is racing to get back to normal. We all want to meet up again. But after a year of being locked down, it takes time to get back to normal. When we are going through things, we tend to turn to our friends to talk to, but they don't necessarily give us the best advice. We all need help from time to time, and asking for support is a sign of strength. It is not weak. Help is available immediately through Talkspace, who will match your needs with a licensed professional. You could get the help right away. Start feeling better with a single message. Match with a licensed therapist when you go to Talkspace.com and you will get $100 off your first month if you use the promo code SEAN, S-H-A-U-N. That's $100 off when you use the promo code SEAN at Talkspace.com. Are you married? Three times in America. Here? No. At present? No. <laughs> Anybody who's that generous, my dear, is worth being married to. <laughs> Very generous with his time, hopefully with everything else. <laughs> I've never been called stingy in that department. <laughs> mm, glad to hear it. <laughs> Come and sit closer. Since we're both since we're both older than we look. <laughs> I need a toy ball. So here I am with Lady C in Castle Goring with the wonderful Mickey who's over here. Who come Mickey. on Mickey, make an appearance. Hey <laughs> And if you've not seen Lady C's videos on YouTube, she's become an absolute phenomenon specializing in royal commentary. I've been gripped watching hours and hours of her content, and we are gonna cover some of the biggest stories in that genre over the course of this podcast. So thank you very much for... sorry. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much for your time today, Lady C. Oh, it's my pleasure. What made you want to become a YouTuber? Well, I didn't want to become a YouTuber, actually. I completely fell into it by accident. Last year during lockdown, I had... Uh, a young friend of mine, he's very young, he's in his early 20s, uh, also a friend of my children, staying here for lockdown. And he came up with the idea for entertaining his friends of little chats with me because they thought I was interesting and they liked the fact that, you know, it's a castle, etc., etc. And that's how it started and it took off from there. Wow. I mean, completely serendipitous. Wow. Good grief. I had no idea. And how does it feel then to suddenly have all of these followers and people contacting you constantly? Actually, I think it's a privilege. Uh, you know, I now understand what Diana, Princess of Wales, meant when she spoke about the public and, you know, to her, the public was a real living, breathing entity. And I now get it, uh, which I have to say, until you experience it, 
you might think it's notional, but it's really actual because your public consists of all the people who like you or, and also some, of course, who dislike you. And, but no, I think it's a privilege and I, I don't, I've never taken the good things in life for granted. I think in life it's very important to count your blessings and remember them. Absolutely. And we will be layering in some life lessons as well. Count your blessings <laughs> being one of them. You have some very eloquent turns of phrase, and I hope we do um, some of those pop up during this interview. <laughs> so you've touched on Princess Di then. Mm. So recently, her sons kind of pointed the finger at the BBC and Bashir mm. as a contributing towards the factors that led to her death. How do you feel about the, the, them expressing that at this point in time? I think they were actually absolutely right to express it. I mean, I actually think it's a complete disgrace the way Martin Bashir conducted himself and then the way the BBC covered it up. You know, I mean, I'm all in favour of Tony Hall's pension as the Director General being completely stripped from him because had he been honest and, and upfront and had he displayed the integrity that he should have had, he would never have been made. Director General. And had he been found out earlier, he wouldn't have. And I think what happened with Martin Bashir was a total disgrace. But I've got to tell you, the BBC has been, in my opinion, and I've been saying this for some time now, a deeply dodgy organization because uh, I'm old enough to remember, which you aren't, uh, what happened with Ethiopia and what happened with Iran. I mean, they actively sought the toppling of the emperor of Ethiopia and the Shah of Persia. They succeeded. What were these replaced with? The Mengistu government and the Ayatollah Khomeini. Now, how moral is it for a supposedly impartial news organization, which is also the national broadcaster, to be involving itself in politics internationally, as well as nationally, it's got to be said, and playing God with other people's lives. In terms of Meghan Markle and Harry. <laughs> <laughs> Who? <laughs> Do you think then that what happens... Can I interrupt right yes. there? Why have you not stood up and genuflected as you were re mentioning these godly names. You are so disrespectful. <laughs> I would have doffed my cap if I'd have brought one today. <laughs> Do you think that Harry's situation now what happened to Princess Di contributed to that? You know, the media pressure, the um, constant pressure of having to do things within the family. And he, he, he didn't want that pressure upon himself and for his wife. Do you think that, that was a factor that led to him splintering off? No, I don't. I absolutely don't. I think we need to look at Harry pre-Meghan and Harry post-Meghan, and they're two completely different people. 
when those children were young, and my children used to play with them. I mean, my children are quite a few years younger, but they still used to play with them. And I have many friends whose children were contemporaries of Williams and Harry's. And I knew an awful lot about them from they were this high. And I knew from members of the royal family as well that there were grave concerns with the way Diana was spoiling those children and that she was not bringing them up to be sufficiently disciplined, that she was bringing them up to be ill-disciplined, not only undisciplined, ill-disciplined. William has fortunately grown out of it. Harry, the imprint, I hate to say, has been absolutely, you know what the Jesuits say, give me a boy till the age of seven and I'll give you a man for life. Well, Diana had him for 13 years. That's nearly double the age of seven. Uh, Harry uh, has always been spoilt. He has always been entitled. He has always had a terrible, terrible temper. And a friend of mine whose son used to go to school with Harry didn't ever want to go to parties with Harry because Harry was always fighting boys and causing trouble. This was Harry as a little boy. So I actually think had Harry been disciplined properly from the word go, he wouldn't have expected that everything should go his way. I mean, stop and think for two minutes. What is this man complaining about? The fact that he was number two and not number one. You know, the fact that he has to walk behind three or four people. What about the hundreds of thousands and millions of people who have to walk behind him? You know, think of it for a second. Put it in context, in proportion. The guy is totally, totally out to lunch. He's also dumb. He's really stupid. I mean, that everybody has always said. And it's a fatal combination of spoilt and stupid. You know, one of them without the other might have been manageable. And then he falls into the clutches of this Jezebel who thinks that she should be the impersonation of Iago dropping poison into Othello's air. Desdemona being the royal family, the British nation, etc., etc., all for fame and fortune. That's her agenda. Her agenda is about the moolah. So that, and I have no doubt that she figured out a long time ago when, if she wants to leave Harry and she stayed in the British royal family. She would walk with nothing shades of Sarah Ferguson. However, if she managed to get him to California and merged, she would hopefully leave with a lot. I think she's going to leave with a whole less than she thought she would, because I think she's so miscalculated and misplayed her hand. And she's not had the imagination or the bigness of spirit to see that had she stayed in the royal family, she'd have ended up being the most revered woman on earth. Of course, that wouldn't have helped the bank account. And we need to think that 
about the bank accounts, because she certainly does. So you've raised a few points there then. Sorry, too I think, many. <laughs> I think it was, uh, I don't know if it was William or Harry who recently said that his father's schooling up in Scotland, the school that Charles went to, was very brutal. And he criticised the parenting skills of the Queen and Philip and said that that uncurring um, has been passed down in the DNA to his father. That was Harry. That was Harry. Genetic That's right. pain. That's it. Genetic first of pain. All, first, yes. I think he meant generational pain. There's okay. no such thing as genetic pain. But, you know, we do have to make allowances for somebody who could couldn't even pass art without assistance from Eton, which, of course, then got the whole the school into huge trouble. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, the only thing he seems to be able to pass without any difficulty is bowel movements. <laughs> so are you saying then that this um, generational genetic pain theory is poppycock? You see, the, 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 throw the baby in, in the mud and let the baby toughen up. Is that the attitude? There, there, if you need to, can I answer it in, in, in depth as opposed to with a facile answer? Yes, please do. Royals are born, not created. You have the raw material of a baby that needs to be brought up to be a star, whether it has star quality or not. Many of them don't and didn't. Especially if you read uh, biographies, say, for instance, Chips Channon, uh, his memoirs, uh, you know, there were a whole host of royals who were basically very ordinary, rather shy, uninteresting, vapid individuals. But they had to be brought up to be stars because they are perennial stars. You know, a Hollywood actor or actress might have five, ten, even twenty years. A royal has a lifetime. So they are brought up from the word go to perform in a certain way. It doesn't work if they don't perform in that way because it's not about their personality. It's about the performance that they give embodying the hopes of the nation and the people they are meeting and the representation of the nation as they meet people. You know, most royal engagements are rarely boring. I mean, it's, you know, the mayor of this, the uh, school teacher of that. Uh, it's not exciting. It doesn't make the front pages of the newspapers. It doesn't even make the back pages of the newspapers. This is 95% of royal engagements. But they are rarely necessary because you are rewarding all the ordinary people who are doing good work for the nation. Okay, so putting that in context, that's why royals need to be brought up in a particular way. 
But it's not only royals. You know, anybody who's born into a world of privilege. I was born into a world of privilege. I was brought up to have good manners and to behave considerately when I met people. And even if I didn't feel like it, I was bloody well going to have to do it. And I brought my children up with the same way. And, you know, when I had sepsis, I'll use an example. When I had sepsis, we were having an event at the castle with the, one of the local MPs and the local mayor and many of the local worthies. I got out of my sick bed, sat down for the duration of the luncheon, immediately left and went back to bed. That's what you're supposed to do. I mean, my motto is, the only good excuse is death. <laughs> and I applied to myself and I applied to everybody. This is the world that Harry was brought up to live in. This is the world that Harry more or less happily lived in until he met Meghan. This world doesn't suit Meghan. She's a spoilt, entitled brat who doesn't want to do anything she doesn't like. And she can't see a financial reward for anything and everything. She's not interested in it. But she married into a world that is not about money. You have privileges. You have comfort. You have a splendid way of life. You are reimbursed for everything. But it's not about money. It is about the perpetuation of the way of life and that you embody and you are the representative of something larger than yourself. So does this make sense? It absolutely makes sense. So if you're coming from, like I, I lived in America for almost 20 years and it is about money. Mm. If you're going from that mindset then into a circle of titles and royal lineage and tradition, mm. how does one adjust to thrive in the other? Well, the Duchess of Windsor married, managed it very well, may I say. I used to know the Duke and Duchess of Windsor slightly. And, you know, there's a lot of misinformation about her because, of course, the victors write history. Uh, although more and more of it is coming out now. But the Duchess of Windsor is a woman who gave up the right to a $2.5 million fortune in the early 1930s to marry for love. Her uncle disinherited her for doing it. That was a great fortune in those days. She then married the Duke of Windsor, who she didn't want to marry. She wanted to be his mistress, remain married to Ernest Simpson. She did not want to marry him. Her worst nightmare came true when he gave up the throne and married her. But she became the archetypal royal duchess. She entertained in the most beautiful. She was regarded as the finest hostess on earth. She, it was not about money. It was about replicating what her husband had given up for her. And she did it in an exemplary fashion. 
there are loads of Americans like Wally Swinzer. Princess Grace, Princess Grace, it was not about money. It was not about merching herself. Uh, you know, when she was offered the role of Marnie and she wanted to accept it, and Prince Rainier said, no, you can't, it's not suitable. Even though it, this wasn't about money, this was going to be about fame and doing something she really loved, she understood she couldn't do it. Later in her life, she came up with a more acceptable version, which was poetry readings, which she do for charity. So, the fact that Megan is an American who is money hungry doesn't mean that all Americans are money hungry. I know many Americans who it's not all about money alone. There is a category of not only American, but of person in the world that it is only about money. These, I would submit, are really rather low individuals with very little vision. Because if life is all about money, and, and also if life is only about achieving what you want, you miss many of the lessons in life, which are sometimes you need to make the best of what you have been given, and then it turns into something completely different and that you then enjoy and like. Happiness in enjoying the small things. And would you say that happiness is in your heart and what your thoughts make it? Yes. I think actually that one of the keys to life is alchemy. You know, the alchemist and the, the desire in ancient times to turn base metal into gold. They didn't understand that this was a figurative thing, that the secret to life is literally turning the base metal of anguish and pain and disenchantment and things going wrong into a golden scenario for yourself and the rest of the world. Told you you were going to get some life lessons today. So, <laughs> so can I refer this to my agent? Uh, can I refer this to my agent? I'll, I'd like to know what the cut's going to be, honey. <laughs> H, do you hear how wonderful I am? I'm taking care of our fortune. Yes, H. It's not about anything but money. <laughs> so, there are like popular popularity ratings for the various royals over the years. And the Queen is consistently high. Um, what is the Queen's constitution like to do such good work for so long? When you say her constitution, well, she has the constitution of an ox, of course, but then so did her mother, you know? I mean, she's got really good genes in that department. She also, though, has always been the sort of personality, even as a little girl, she always wanted to get things right. Crawfee, her nanny, uh, describes in her memoirs 
how little Lilibet would jump out of bed because she remembered she hadn't straightened her shoes. <laughs> you know, that shows a desire to get things right that is a natural part of her character, but also something that clearly was enhanced by her upbringing. And she understands that monarchy is not about a show and it's not about vanity. I mean, she and Prince Philip will tell you, sorry, would have told you in years gone by because, of course, he's now dead. But when they were in their 20s and even in their 30s, they were the most glamorous and popular couple on earth. <laughs> and their attitude was... It's just sort of a, something nice, but it's nothing that we should be focusing on. And it's not about us. The, pe the people who start to think it's about them and, hey, shades of Harry and Meghan. Harry and Meghan think they are special. They are unique. That they, it's about them. And that they, being so special, have are bringing something special to the table. And they can teach everybody from the pantheon heights of their wonderfulness how to do everything and be everything. You know, experts who haven't even finished reading the instruction booklet. But how much sacrifice has the Queen had to make over the decades? Oh, without a doubt, the Queen has had to make a lot of sacrifice. But she is very invested in the role. She was taught very well by her father and especially her grandmother, Queen Mary, who had a great reverence for the crown and understood that the crown was a lot more uh, in spiritual terms than in practical terms. And she taught the Queen a lot of these lessons about the importance of the crown. So the Queen is like a nun. She has a vocation. She happily lives up to the vocation. She happily makes the sacrifices, well, maybe sometimes not so happily, because, I mean, she's had to make sacrifices, for instance, in terms of her marriage. In the early days of the accession, you know, when the politicians and the courtiers were trying to cause a lot of problems between the Queen and Prince Philip so that they would block what they regarded as Philip's influence via Lord Mountbatten, who they thought was too pink. Uh, and they were worried about Prince Philip's influence over the Queen. But the Queen has always been very middle of the road as indeed was her father, not her mother so much, but her father, as indeed were King George V and Queen Mary, because they are the ones who took monarchy as a concept from, you know, the splendor of the crown to we represent the people of the nation, all of the people of the nation. And they're the ones who did this during the war and at the end of the war. It seems like sometimes there's a sacrifice between duty over love. 
So if we look at Prince Charles, for example, then it seems that the woman he loved, he wasn't allowed to be with, and then he went on to marry Di, and then all these other, this other stuff happened. Do you think that's a correct interpretation? No, I don't think it is at all. Okay, let's, let's hear I what the truth is then. I don't think it all is. Uh, there was no prospect of Prince Charles marrying Camilla Shand. Camilla was in love with Andrew Parkables and was determined to get him and did. Mm. Prince Charles was only a fling because Andrew Parkables was having a fling with Princess Anne. So, and Camilla was determined to nail him and she did. So there was no prospect of her marrying Prince Charles, in those days. She didn't even want to marry him. I mean, you know, where people get these sort of narratives from, I'd love to know. The crown? Oh, please, please. I think it's, sh- you know, it should be called the throne. But, and, but it really is the thing that everybody sits upon in the morning and then flushes. <laughs> <laughs> because a lot of it's beautifully done it's beautifully done it's you know in terms of production artistry costume writing etc it's magnificently done so as a writer i can look at it and say it's really well done my god it's as i said it should be called the throne not the crown <laughs> because what it pervades is what people normally do on thrones. So just just to, if, if you could clarify a little bit more on that subject then. So Charles, I'm sorry, so Camilla wasn't in love with Charles, but Charles was trying to woo Camilla back then, is that? Oh is no, that they had say? a fling. They had a fling. They had a okay. fling, but it was just a fling. And he was, you know, he was upset that our, uh, as one is, but then you move on and he moved on and there were several girls he wanted to marry thereafter. But, you know, I had friends who could have married Prince Charles or other members of the royal family because, I mean, we're all contemporaries. And I remember I was very friendly with a certain girl who one of the princes wanted to marry and she said, I'd sooner die than marry into the royal family. She said, all that ribbon cutting, God forbid. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, another friend of mine who is a princess who was mooted as a bride for Charles, <laughs> she made sure she ran off with someone <laughs> to prevent the marriage. And Anna Wallace did the same thing. Ooh. Anna Wallace, to make sure that Charles wouldn't or revisit the situation, marry Johnny Hesketh. (laughs) So, I mean, well-bred girls, unless they were very ambitious and unless they liked the attention, which Diana did, they did not want the role and they didn't get the role. So, I've forgotten the rest of the question. Okay, so if, if Charles and Camilla's relationship was as tenuous as you described back then, mm. how did it rekindle into what it has become today? Oh, okay. Well, they, obvi- they had genuine affection between each other. 
And Charles was having grave difficulty finding somebody who would accept him. Because, I mean, there are a host of girls, as I just said, who he wanted to marry and he mooted the idea of marriage with, and they fled in the opposite direction. So he and Camilla, then because her marriage was, had not worked out exactly the way she hoped, because Andrews Parker Bowles was very dashing and a great swordsman. And he knew how to duel brilliantly and often. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, this caused her a great, great degree of misery. And she and Charles rekindled their romance. But he also had other amitié amoureuses because he had Dale Tryon, Lady Tryon, who again was somebody I knew slightly. And uh, so, you know, it, it, it wasn't anything serious. And in those days, you know, it's not like now we live in a very puritanical age where, you know, I mean, I, I keep on hearing young people say, oh, I'm going out with somebody. And if they look at somebody or kiss somebody or, or God forbid, they should do naughties with somebody. That's the end of it. I mean, in my day, my dear. You know, until the wedding ring was firmly on your finger. You know, you were definitely not putting yourself on the shelf. And people used to dabble. I mean, that was the done thing in those days. And if you didn't really, it usually was because nobody wanted to dance with you. Let's put it that way. So, and so that was the second time around. Then he met Diana. And she actually is, was the initiator of the whole thing. And she knew what he would like because he'd been out with her sister, Sarah. And she pressed his buttons brilliantly. And I actually used to laugh with friends of mine and say, oh, no, 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 you're going about it all wrong. If you want to marry the guy... Take a leaf out of Diana Spencer or Diana Spencer Wales's book. The way to do it is pretend to love everything. And, oh, I think you're so wonderful. <gasps> Just love Balmoral. Balmoral is the most wonderful place on earth. And as soon as the wedding ring is on the finger, Balmoral? Are you crazy? You think I'm going up to that godforsaken place? <laughs> I mean, really? But she sh shouldn't have done it because. It disillusioned him because he thought he was marrying a sweet, obliging, lovely girl. And it turned out he'd married a very demanding, dominating. She was only 20, but she was extremely dominating. She is the one who had absolute say over the furnishing of Highgrove. Even before they were married, she was giving input into Highgrove. And, you know, he, and she used to say that, uh, you know, she was training him up to be exactly what she wanted. And there came a point, this is my opinion, but I'm pretty sure I'm right. There came a point 
around before the birth of Harry or around the birth of Harry when Charles decided I if I continue constantly compromising myself to make this marriage work, I will disappear as an individual. And at that point, he pulled back. And he then, for the next two years, if I remember correctly, I mean, we're going back a long time now, for the next two years, he had a monastic life. And then he discovered that Diana had had an affair with her private detective, Barry Manneke. And it's at that point that a mutual friend reconnected him with Camilla. So for the first, say, five or six, five or so years of the marriage, maybe six, trying to figure out how long it was, he had no contact with Camilla whatsoever. Very occasionally, they would be at a large party together. They'd be across the room and they purposely kept away from each other. She wanted to give, she wanted to give them his marriage every chance to succeed. He wanted to give his marriage every chance to succeed. But you know, there comes a point when you if you compromise any further, you will compromise yourself out of existence. And Charles was a very spiritual person. He was also in therapy, and he wanted Diana to be in therapy because Diana had a serious eating disorder as well as several other emotional problems which had made the marriage basically untenable. And he wanted, and not only he, his father, his mother, they had psychiatrists and psychologists and psychotherapists after, one after the other, trooping through Kensington Palace, and Diana refused to nibble until later on down the line, when she decided she wanted help, then she got it. And that was what made the difference. But by then, the marriage was over. So that's rarely how it went. The Crown certainly didn't show that. So thank you for setting the record Well, of course straight. it wasn't going to. Peter Morgan is uh, very Republican. And uh, their advisor, Robert Lacey, has, has uh, been anything but what I would regard as consistent. Because in his latest book, Brothers at War, uh, in the in the hardcover version, he has that pink is pink. No, actually, he doesn't. He has that pink is green, and the second, now latest version, it's green is green and pink is pink. But he completely disagrees with himself. So uh, they push a very irresponsible, in my view, and very theatrically valuable and dramatic point of view that is detrimental to the interests of the crown. And they don't care. To them, they don't have a responsibility to the living, breathing people or to the nation. As far as they're concerned, if they can undermine the crown and make a whole load of money, they've done well. And if they don't undermine the crown and make a whole load of money, they've done equally well. 
So there was a book, Diana in her own words, and the interviews that she did. Uh. Don't know if you had a chance to look at the book, but I imagine you've seen the interviews that she did. What's your take on that? Well, my dear, my take on it is that when Diana was telling you anything, you had to be very careful what to believe. I mean, my first Diana book, Diana in Private, The Princess Nobody Knows, started out as an authorised biography. I even went into the palace about it with Diana's consent. It was going to be a biography focusing on her charity work for three of her charities that were three of my charities. Halfway through the book, interviews for the book, either she twigged or somebody said something to her. I suspect somebody said something to her. And she realized, because she said it, this is my get out of jail card. She realized if she spilt the beans, that she would be able to leave the royal family. I was perfectly happy to go along with it, as long as I thought it was the truth. When I realized that she had, well, she'd done what Robert Lacey has just done with his book, completely changed the story in the middle of, of the recounting of it. You know, you cannot say, oh, uh, you know, as an example, oh, such and such is a wonderful person and they've been totally honest and they've never done anything to harm me. And then when it becomes in their interest, actually, you know, they're a real rotter and they've been really beastly and, you know. And when I realized that, well, she, well, when she changed the story to be accurate and I checked on it because I, I mean, the problem with Diana, where I was concerned, is we knew so many of the same people. And I was friendly with half her relations. And, you know, there was nothing that she said that I couldn't check. And also, I knew more about some aspects of her life than she did. Because my boyfriend at the time was James Buchanan Jardine, who was a cousin of Maggie Strathmore's wife. And she used to try to pump me for information about what was going on up at Glam's. She used to say, well, you know far more than I do, blah, 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 blah. So when I realized that she was lying, because she, going from, actually, I have nothing against Charles. He's a really decent man. You know, he allows me to have my lovers, blah, 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 and da, da, da. And he has Camilla, I have James, and I've had da-da-da, and one or two that she denied as well, which I knew. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, which was fine. I wasn't going to humiliate her, you know. I mean, I think I mentioned four in the book. And believe me, I was extremely generous because you could have added at least, at least one zero. And... And she was, uh, because she was looking for love. She wanted love. And I'm not decrying that. Uh, but when she starts, she, she went from that Charles was this really nice guy and that he allowed her to have her own life. And he even used to allow James Hewitt to go and stay at Highgrove and instruct his children. I mean, how broad-minded is that, for goodness sakes? 
And then all of a sudden, Charles is this monster and this beast, and Charles has made her life terrible, and, and Camilla has the, and you know, but she'd already told me about Barry Manneke. She'd even told me that, that uh, how, how the whole thing started. It's in my book. She'd even told me that she believed that Barry Manneke had been wiped out by the Secret Services to prevent him from speaking about their romance. I mean, blah, blah. I didn't believe that, by the way. I, I knew that's what she believed, but I, I thought his accident was completely, completely an accident. But I put it in my book. Uh, so, I mean, how does she go from that to, oh, it's Camilla. And she knew that, that she knew that in the early days it wasn't Camilla, that, that Camilla had nothing, that Camilla wasn't there. And I thought, no, you know, and I, so I, but I also realized if she's changed like this and she's done a vote fast and she says, my book is going to be the get out of jail card because she wants out. And she also has decided that the way to get out, and this I figured out very simply, was to make herself into the victim. Because, of course, as, as we now know, nowadays it's almost obligatory for every perpetrator to present himself or herself as a victim. You know, it's so tiresome. I mean, you know, have the courage of your convictions, for God's <laughs> sake, you know. I mean, if you're going to be splendid, be splendid. Don't be a mealy-mouthed, splendid, splendid version of, oh, I'm wonderful, but I'm a victim. I'm marvelous, I'm a victim. <laughs> and so I... I realized if she'd done it to me, she was going to do it to someone else. And I thought, wow. I realized I had information that was dynamite. And I had to think long and hard about whether I wanted to proceed and publish the book. I had a signed contract. I had, a, I had got a part of the advance. Uh, and then I realized, if I have to give back the money, and I'm not going to get what I want as well, which was baby money to adopt my children. I wanted to be free of my family, and I became free of them as a result of this. I realized as well, if I did not uh, proceed with the book, her version would be published by someone else. And I thought, it's actually my duty, since I know the truth and I know the ambush that is waiting for the Prince of Wales down the line. And had it been, had it been fair, I'd have allowed him to be ambushed. I'd have actually ambushed him myself. But because I knew it wasn't fair, I thought, no, and my book was published before the Morton book. And of course, then, uh, Andrew Neal, Andrew Morton, R Rupert Murdoch, all hopped into the frame to sort of denigrate the royal family. And remember, Rupert Murdoch is a Republican. He has no good thing to say about the monarchy. He doesn't really approve of the monarchy. And the agenda being pushed by the Sunday Times using the Morton book was that the royal family was cold and harsh and cruel 
and Diana was this poor, sweet, innocent victim. She could be sweet, she certainly wasn't poor, and she was nobody's victim. Charles, if anything, was her victim. So in the aftermath of the death of Di then, we saw Dodie's father and oh. <laughs> Earl Spencer, is it? They shifted the blame. Um, what are your thoughts on, on their perspective? Well, could you be a little bit more particular? Because yeah, you I mean, mentioned Earl Spencer. The, Earl Spencer was dead. Oh, who oh, was oh, the sorry, Dan, you mean Charles, Charles Spencer. Charles Spencer. Oh, Charles Spencer. Yes, of course, sorry. he was by then Charles Earl Spencer. Spencer. Yeah, yeah. Oh, please spare me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Charles Spencer, I've only ever come across him once, and it was when he was a teenager, and he was absolutely indescribably dreadful. Uh, and I gather that with the passage of time, he has improved somewhat, although it depends which wife you listen to. <laughs> so let's put that that way. And I thought that Charles Spencer's uh, self-serving journalistic, and let's remember Charles Spencer's a journalist, and he thinks like a journalist, and a cheap shot will always suffice if it's going to get him the attention he desires and requires. And that speech that he made, because it was a speech in at the funeral, was a complete disgrace. And you know how he could have done it and, and held his head up. And such utter rubbish and clap trap. Uh, but brilliantly done. He's a very good writer. I've read many of his books. For instance, his book on the murderers of Charles I is a wonderful work. Uh, but where his sister's concerned, recently, I think, in terms of the Bashir thing, he's been very good and very measured, and I support everything he says 100%. As for what he said at the time of the f her death, codswallop. Mohammed Fayed, well... A grief-stricken father who has an axe to grind with some justification against the British establishment. I always thought he should have been given a British passport. I always thought it was a total disgrace that he was not given a British passport. Uh, he has done wonderful charity work long before any involvement with the royal family. Uh, I have been to things at Windsor, the Windsor Horseshoe, where he was there with the Queen. So, you know, but this was in the days before he was made a pariah by the government. It was not by the royal family. But I think he confused the two. And he came out with a load of cod's wallop. And I have to tell you that the immediate story going around uh, which is possibly why he came out with the cod swallop, was immediately after Diana died with Dodie, the first version was that it was a hit by the Libyans because Mohammed Fayed and Dodie always wore clip-on ties and were surrounded by security. And the rumor was that he had... And I'm sure this is just a rumor, by the way, but I'm telling it nevertheless because it explains 
uh, his conduct. That, that the rumor was, and he knew about this rumor, by the way, that, that he had got the money to buy Harrods, not from the Sultan of Brunei, not anything to do with the Sultan of Brunei, but from Muammar Gaddafi. Now, you may not know this, but in 1977, I was the Libyan ambassador's private secretary. So I actually have had good connections into the Gaddafi camp, let's put it that way. And the rumor was that Gaddafi had hit him. He, since he couldn't reach Mo, as they said, he reached Dodi, and Diana was collateral damage. Well, Mohammed Fayed is no fool. He realizes if this gets out, it's going to be highly damaging. So he comes up with an alternative explanation, which is, as you will know, you're in the, in the business. The, the oldest trick in the book, knock out one story with a better story. And so the better story was that Prince Philip was behind it, <laughs> which was ludicrous. I mean, absolutely ludicrous. And it's amazing how many people believe that rubbish and that, you know, that Diana was wiped out because the royal family didn't want her to marry a Muslim. Well, excuse me, Hajnat Khan is a Muslim. Hajnat Khan, everybody knew Diana wanted to marry him. He's still living and breathing. Why wasn't he rubbed out? Uh, but Dodi was rubbed out because Dodi's a Muslim. Hajnat Khan is a Muslim. Uh, you see, it, none of it stacks up. It doesn't make sense. Did he say how Prince Philip was supposed to have orchestrated this? Uh, well, I don't even want to go into it. It's, the whole thing's just ludicrous. I mean, you, you must have heard all about it. There's so many different theories online. It's, it's, you, it's, 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 it's crazy. It's insanity. But also, you see, it sets the pace because people do not want to believe that accidents, stupid accidents happen. People always want an explanation to feel they are more in control of their fate by explaining away happenstance. The only four people in that car who knew the route the car was going to take were the people in the car. No one else knew. Are we to believe that the British Secret Service, and there may be 30 routes between the Ritz and, and uh, Dodie's flat. Are we to believe that the Secret Service had hitmen on each and every one that night? I mean, the whole thing is stupid. You know, it's just stupid. Which brings us back then to the role of the media pressure. They wouldn't have been driving and running around at that rate, would they, if, if there wasn't all this pressure, the hounding... Do you think that was a contributory factor, more realistically speaking? There is no doubt that Henri Paul was instructed to lose the paparazzi who were following them. There is also no doubt, I quote people I interviewed after her death in, in the Real Diana which was published in America in 1998 and in the UK in 2004. 
I quote people to whom she spoke, who she rang up to tell them where she was going to be for them to follow her. You cannot blame the reporters who were following her at her behest and her invitation. If anybody deserves partial blame for triggering the events that caused that accident, it is Diana herself. She rang them up, told them where she was going to be. You know, think about it for two seconds. They were safely ensconced at the Ritz. They didn't have to leave to go back to Dodie's flat. It was a cat and mouse game. You know, I think when the press behaves badly, they should be pilloried. When they do not behave badly, they should not be blamed for going about their business. If a celebrity of any description rings up the press, and Diana systematically rang up the press. Don't take my word for it. Read, uh, gosh, what is his name? Uh, Nicholas Coleridge's memoirs about how he asked Diana to lunch at Vogue House. Carlton House rules. Nobody's supposed to know. Everything is a big secret. He's walking her out to her car afterwards, and there's a paparazzo. And when he checks into it, it turns out Diana had leaked it to the press herself. She was notorious for doing this. Meghan and Harry do the same thing. Meghan and Harry, three of, they have sunshine sacks, and three and four times a week, they pay these people to put them in the newspapers. Then they are talking about being hounded. I'm sorry, you know. You do, you're not hounded by people you have given invitations to. And we need to accept the fact that if you're responsible for issuing the invitation, you're also responsible for the outcome of what happens when the invitation is acted upon. What about the driver's alcohol consumption then? Was that more of a contributory factor? Well, I have actually interviewed everybody concerned for the book. And, you know, Henri Paul's alcohol factor is supposed to have been higher than before. There is no doubt that he drank. I think he had a pastis before, just before. He got up, it's all there on tape. He got up, he got down on his haunches and tied his shoelaces 90 seconds before getting into the car. It's all there on tape. You tell me how it is possible for someone's faculties to be impaired if they execute such an intricate balancing act. One of the American, you know, you lived in America, I lived in America. One of the standard things in America for drunk drivers is to, is to walk a straight line. It's much easier to walk a straight line than to get down on your haunches and tie your shoelaces. So that suggests to me 
that Henri Paul's faculties were not particularly impaired. The evidence of what happened is very clear. If you wish to go into the evidence, it is very clear. And I went into it exhaustively, not only to write the book, but to update the book after the inquest. There, the evidence suggests, do you want to know what the, what the evidence suggests? Yes, because it's really simple what the evidence suggests. They leave the Ritz. They are being chased by the paparazzi. Henri Paul's instructions are lose them. So he's trying to lose them. I had a flat in Paris. I know Paris very well. I don't know if you know Paris very no. well. Well, most people don't, and that's part of the problem. But these tunnels have like sort of big roundabouts and you get it's and you get in. Anyway, the Alma Tunnel is also it's pretty much you'd have to be actually sleeping or maybe even comatose to have an accident there normally. He jump, he, he starts into the tunnel and there is a fiat in front by him and he clips the fiat. There's no doubt about it. The physical evidence was there. The Mercedes, as it was entering the tunnel, clipped the white fiat. It is my opinion, having spoken to Mercedes, endless people, police, etc., that it is at that point that the airbags deployed. Airbags, what nobody tells you is airbags can deploy if you shave past something. You do not have to, sorry, slam into something. If you shave past it, airbags can deploy. The airbags did not deploy when the car hit the 13th column because there were two eyewitnesses who I interviewed and I quote in my book. They, one of them saw everything that happened. There were no airbags deployed, but the airbags had deployed. When did they deploy? The only thing that makes sense is as the car was entering the tunnel, it clipped and it did clip the Fiat, the airbags deployed. The evidence thereafter suggests that the airbags were deployed as it entered the tunnel because Henri Paul, once an airbag deploys, you are completely covered with it. Blinded. You're not only blinded, it fills up the whole of the car. Uh, so, so not only are you blinded, you're, it's, you're like covered in cloth for only about 30 or so seconds. But you are complete, not only are you blinded, you are completely, it's almost immobilized. The car was in drive when it hit, when it clipped the car. The car was in neutral when it hit the tunnel. That tells you, the evidence tells you that Henri Paul moved the car from drive into neutral when the airbags deployed. 
unless the airbag itself moved the car, which I don't know that that's possible. I, it's never occurred to me until just now that, but it's possible, I suppose, that the airbag, if the airbag didn't, he definitely did, because the car was in neutral. The car entered the tunnel with the engine roaring. An engine does not roar when a car is in drive. It only roars at high speed when the car is in neutral. There are several witnesses on the bridge and in the tunnel who heard the car engine roaring. There was a car in front of, in the tunnel, and the French, remember, France is reversed. So, so everything is reversed. As the car enters the tunnel, there is a car in front of it going at a reasonable speed. And it sees the couple, they see this car thundering down towards them making the most god-awful roaring sound. And he immediately sped up to avoid being rammed by the Mercedes that is hurtling down towards him. And it is obviously at that point that the airbags lost, you know, they, they, they sort of stopped and he and Henri Paul could see again because he then made the fatal error, and it was fatal, of trying to avoid slamming into the back of the car by going into the other lane. But when a car is in neutral, you have no control over it. It is only when it is in drive that you have control over. And this, remember, would have happened all in a matter of seconds. And he hurtled past by and slammed in to one side and then into the 13th column as the other car managed to. And that is what happened. And what it tells you is that, and he was killed immediately because the girl saw the whole thing in her rear view mirror and she saw him slam into the, and she saw the car concert, the engine concertina in and kill him as she saw the whole thing. And it then moved further back and killed Dodie as well. And that's what happens. And Diana wasn't dead. Diana was still talking. She was dazed, but she wasn't dead. Because I interviewed the doctor, who Dr. Maye, I think he was called, M-A-I-L-L-I, Maye, or whatever, anyways, you know, a French name. And, uh, and he's the one who alighted upon the and made her comfortable. And my brother-in-law, I have to tell you, is a top cardiologist in America. And I checked with him what happened in terms of the injuries and he said, once they moved her because she had a pulmonary vein torn, as long as she was crouched or sitting up, she, was, she would not have bled out. Once they moved her to make her prone more comfortable, which is what they did when they moved her out of the car, that's when she started to bleed out. And that's what the whole thing was a tragic accident. But she said, My God, my God, what's happened? I mean, she was stunned, but she was conscious at first. 
How long did she last after she was moved? Well, she started to bleed out as soon as as the the what because what they did once they got her out of the car, they put her on on a sort of lilo thingy. And what people don't realize as well, and they say, oh, it took so long to get her to the hospital. The SAMU in France, it's they are effectively uh, vehicles that are moving intensive care units. So, I mean, and every time her heart rate and her blood pressure, they, they'd stop to stabilize her, then move on. And they, because, and it's, but she was getting proper medical attention. But once she was moved, she had bled out enough that even if she survived, she'd have been a vegetable. So the fact of the matter is it's merciful that she died. But as long as she wasn't moved, she, she was, it's like if I plunge a knife into you and you, and that knife stays in, you have a chance. If I pull it out, the likelihood is you're going to die. Another lesson. Yeah. So. Good grief. What an f- absolutely fascinating, detailed, inside account. I have, you know, I had no idea about a lot of that. And I'm sure the people watching this are going to be blown away by your level of knowledge. Moving on from Princess Di then, what do you think about the, the name Lilibet coming up back up now oh, in the please. news? An abomination. I mean, you know, only an Arivist from California who thinks that everything can be solved with a trip to the beach and avocado <laughs> could have thought that it was anything but a total insult and abomination. And I was the first person, may I say, to say that the Queen had not agreed. I said it before the BBC made the announcement. I hate hate to have to blow my own horn, but what the heck? (laughs) Because she did not give them permission. She never gave them permission. And the BBC confirmed it. She never gave them permission. It's yet another ploy on the part of Meghan with that poodle faker uh, who wags his tail every time she says, jump! (laughs) No! Yes! (laughs) Oh, H, you're so wonderful. Come, let me give you a kiss. I mean, it's the, we are witnessing the most unsavory and pathetic exhibition uh, where those two are concerned. And I'm awfully sorry. I think she has done it because A, she's a fame junkie and she knew it was going to grab headlines. And B, she's, as her previous uh, business manager, Gina Nelthorpe Count said she's primarily a businesswoman. It's all about money. And she knows down the line she might be able to make money out of it. But there's another element to it that I 
have spoken to people about, and we are in absolute agreement about this element to it. You see, Megan is extremely self-important. She rarely thinks that she is more important than the Queen. And she struggles with the fact that people haven't got that under their belt yet. Come on, Mickey. So, hey, are you joining us? Do you want to come up here? Want to come up here? You might have to help her up. Oh, come on. Come on. Oh, oh. Further down. It's... Come on. Oh, yes. There we go. There we go. Oh, kisses. You want kisses? <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> Mickey, you can't marry him. He's not a cavalier, King Charles Tricolor. <laughs> so, yes, so to resume while Mickey kisses you, shall I talk? Yes, keep going, oh, please. Uh, she, I mean, if you remember when they left and they were told they couldn't use the word royal. And oh, she's knocking out the, the, the and she she said, "Well, so who does this old woman think she is? She doesn't own the word royal. I mean, that was the message that she gave loud and clear to those who didn't get it. And can you just imagine for the rest of her life, she's going to be able to speak about a woman who she has denigrated repeatedly, publicly and privately. She's, since she's not allowed to call the Queen Lilibet, not even Aunt Lilibet, which, say, the King of Spain does, from here on in, what's she going to be able to do? She's going to be able to say, Lilibet! <laughs> Get your backside hair, you <laughs> ghastly little thing. Who do you think you are? You know, you're just, who do you think you are? Remember your place. <laughs> so she's going to actually be able to physically articulate what she has been metaphorically articulating to the person after whom the child is named. And whoever heard in any event of calling a child by a nickname, it is a study in vulgarity and tastelessness. Are the consequences then for plagiarizing the name? Will there be consequences? There are no consequences, are there, really, beyond the fact that they have yet again exposed themselves to be so tasteless. And, and they have also shown their family and the establishment and anybody who doesn't like them, that they have no boundaries and they have no respect for anybody. And they have stolen the Queen's private nickname and they have sullied it by naming... The, and they're not even going to call the child Lilibet. They're going to call her Lily. Had this... Had it been naming the child after the Queen, the name would have been Elizabeth. And Harry claims he told his grandmother that he was going to name the child. He, they were thinking of naming the child after her. Well, believe me, in a month of Sundays, if you think that he said to the Queen, Oh, oh Granny, we're going to name the child Lilibet after you. 
If you believe that, you believe that the Earth is flat and Meghan Markle is a wonderful human being and Harry is a genius. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that Oprah monetized the royal story? Of course Oprah monetized the royal story. Oprah, Oprah is in the business of making money. She's a businesswoman. Yeah, if you want to come up, you can come up. Come on. Okay, yes. Ah, yes. Yeah. She says she knows her place in the scheme of things, <laughs> and it is on top of Marty's lap. <laughs> yes, I think Oprah did. I think without a doubt she monetized it. Uh, I think she actually made a mistake because it has affected her reputation. In what way? Well, she has been accused of giving them a free ride of not asking any of the tough questions. Like, how can you say two and two is 22 when everybody believes it's four? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and, and how can you, Harry, be saying that this very traumatic conversation took place once before the marriage? And Meghan is saying it took place several times while she was pregnant with Archie. Now, which one is it? Because it can't be both. You see? I mean, that's, that's just one of the obvious questions that could have been asked. Uh, there are loads of other obvious questions. I mean, there are 17 identifiable mistruths or misremembrances that are enumerated in the interview. And that's just for starters. Um, which led to lots of speculation as to a racist person being in the royal family. And I know you did a video on that. You, you, you detailed a lot of things, but perhaps my viewers haven't seen that. Could you expand on what your perspective is then about that theory is there was a, a racist person in the royal family? It is a total lie for Harry and Meghan to be making out that any member of the royal family was racist in the way they made it out in Oprah's interview. The family has denied it publicly and privately. Yes, baby girl, yes, yes, yes. And it's, you know, Meghan has an agenda. She wants to be the most famous woman on earth. I mean, it's in my book, Meghan and Harry, The Real Story. I, I was told what her objectives were, to be the most famous woman on earth, to be a billionaireess, and hopefully to end up being president of the United States of America. <laughs> Well, I mean, why doesn't she just decide that, well, I mean, I think she's too modest. I mean, she should become goddess of the universe. You know? <laughs> you, Don't you think she's halfway there to her goals? Well, Everybody's been talking about her. Well, she's halfway there to being the most talked about, but that's not the same as being the most famous. She is, she has gone from being one of the most respected and liked members of the royal family 
to the most reviled member of the royal family. She has gone from being somewhat famous to rarely infamous. The two words have a totally different meaning. Maybe to her, it doesn't matter. Maybe to her, any attention is better than no attention at all. But the fact of the matter is, she is infamous, but she, is, she has achieved her objective to the extent that she has turned her sense into one of the most talked about individuals on earth. So that is a success. Uh, insofar as approaching billionaire status is concerned, it hasn't happened and it's not going to happen unless she marries one. You know, all these figures that are being bandied about. I have friends in Hollywood who are Hollywood royalty and they know what's going on. And let me tell you something. There is absolutely no way that 70 million, 130 million, 80 million, 50 million, all these figures that her PR people are banding around to sort of raise their stature and raise their price. It's all PR. It's all rubbish. Uh, I think they're lucky if they've got 10 million. And of course, they have to pay tax on, on some of it. I mean, she's very astute, Meghan, financially astute. And he has good financial advice as well. So they will... And, you know, they will have found ways of working the charity system in America, which is basically a big racket to uh, for rich people to keep a hold of their money, uh, present themselves as philanthropists while giving 5% to a just and a good cause and 95% to themselves for expenses. Oh, that's how that works. Oh, it? yes, that's how it works. Yeah. Right. You know? So, because, I mean, these charities have to, have to be run, and so everything is written off. Everything. Every expense, every everything. And so, but for them, so she's not going to be a billionaireess, uh, unless she marries one. I mean, and who knows, you know, she and Bill Gates seem to have a lot in common. Oh. You have talked about, I think it was Princess Anne giving some cautionary advice about Meghan and yes. their relationship. Could you expand on that, please? Yes, you know, Princess Anne was but one of the sensible members of the family because Catherine also saw Meghan coming from the word go. But Princess Anne is the one I am told, who made it absolutely clear that Harry would be making a big mistake if he married Meghan, thinking that she was going to fit in, because she was not going to fit in, that she, on the contrary, that it, there would be trouble down the line. But she wasn't the only one, because, I mean, Meghan is as transparent as glass, and you have to be really dumb or naive after seeing her in operation for any length of time, to not get the message. And they are used to adventuresses. They're used to adventurers. They're used to opportunists. They're used to 
uh, merchants of fecal matter. Uh, and they see it coming a mile off, as do I and anybody else who's sophisticated. If you've been around the block a few times, the Megans of this world, you know, I mean, they come in and you, you might be, I was duped by her at first because, of course, I had no real interest in her. And I just sort of swallowed what I was being fed. And it was only after the marriage that I began to think, hmm, hmm. And then I began to be fed stuff and I thought, oh, my goodness. And you realize that really trouble was brewing in a big way. But so Princess Anne spotted early on and was not in favor of the marriage because of Meghan's character and Meghan's disposition. Did she, and did Meghan she... is very abrasive, let me tell you as well. You know, Meghan has no humility whatsoever. She will swan into a room with very well-established people, each of whom, well, let me put it, let me do it in an analogous manner. Megan will swan into a room filled with brain surgeons. And because she's had a briefing paper on the subject that's two paragraphs long, she swans into the room and she's, says, no, 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 that's rubbish. And no, no, you know, there's another way. And I think, and I this, and I that, and I, 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 like she's an ice specialist. You know, and she does that, and she does it with everybody. She's, but people at first were deceived because they thought, oh, she's energetic and she's enthusiastic and, you know, she talks a good line of talk. And, but it's the second and third and fourth visits. And that's with people she wants to impress. With those she doesn't want to impress, she doesn't even pretend. She's, she's evidently a sour and a, a wet rag that's actually been stuffed underneath the dog's bowl for six weeks. Were these concerns about her character that Anne um, expressed perhaps based on Megan's relationship with her parents? I see her father popping up constantly, like offering an olive branch on the news and saying his sad story. What, what, what's your take on all that? Well, my understanding is that one of the things that the royal family was very concerned about was why is it that none of Meghan's family is being asked or is being involved? I mean, Thomas Markle, contrary to what you might think, never received an invitation. Thomas Markle, two days before the wedding, had still not a morning suit. I mean, Thomas Markle clearly, from Meghan's point of view, was never intended to show up for this wedding. And what about her other relations? And I am advised that people within the family thought, well, hang on a second. I mean, you know, this is a wedding. It's a royal wedding. It's in front of the whole world. Where are her family? Why is she asking any family? And she's asking 
two or three friends, but the rest of them are Hollywood stars and who she doesn't know or she might have met for the blink of an eyelid. Where are her friends? You know, and one of the signs of an opportunist, of a lone wolf, is somebody who travels without any baggage. And Megan was traveling too light, especially in a world where family is revered. In the royal family, normally third and fifth cousins are asked to marriages. But Meghan and Harry were insisting to cover up for the fact that she had no intention of asking any of her family, with the exception of her mother, who was duly asked, and she made sure she came over. The father, remember, was asked, and he was told, according to them, oh, we'll have this for you, that for you, the other for you. Where was his morning suit? I asked that. Because <coughs> I come from a world where morning suits are used regularly. My children have morning suits. I mean, you don't just go and, you know, arrive in a country the day before and you're measured for a morning suit. It's not Thailand. It's not Hong Kong. You know, you're not paying your $500 for a $3,000 morning suit and some some sort of semi-slave is going to be working over a singer sewing machine, preferably by hand, <laughs> overnight, you know, trying to knock up your, your... I mean, just think about it for two seconds. You know, these are all, these are all pointers to the realities of the situation. And the, everybody was really concerned, it turns out. I wasn't in the slightest bit interested in any of it or knowing anything about it. I don't know them. I'd met Harry when he was growing up. My children used to play with them sometimes, blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? I was 12 years older than his mother, so I'm certainly old enough to be his mother. And completely different generation. So no real meeting point between us, except through friends of mine who are friendly with whose children are friends with them, et cetera, et cetera, and, you know, uh, family connections, that sort of thing. But so I, I had no real interest in what was going on. But when I started to inquire once I, my interest was lit, I began to hear about the anomalies, you know. I mean, think about it. You've been married three times? I mean... Did your wives never have any of their relations, or did you do the sort of elope thing? No, our family's always been very important. Well, exactly. Do you think that the Queen should reach out to Thomas and give him a tour of the, the palace? No. <laughs> no, I don't. I think, I think that would be inflammatory. Uh, and I understand that in the run-up to the wedding, the family was asking why were not her family more involved? So, and they were blown off by Meghan and Harry. And of course, because it was their wedding, 
and Harry was going around saying what Megan wants, Megan gets, and Megan was being very demanding and being a prima donna and creating trouble left, right, and center. Nobody wants, and everybody thought it's Bridezilla, you know. And I mean, we have a wedding venue here, and you know, so we're quite familiar with the fact that some brides get carried away and they're bridezillas, and but they normally settle down afterwards, which is what everybody expected Megan to do as well. They little realized that bridezilla was actually not only bridezilla, but she was Cruella de Vil in a wedding dress. <laughs> <laughs> and the rest of the world are a Dalmatian puppies. <laughs> So there's, there's all kinds of speculation then about um, William and Harry's relationship. Mm. And we saw after Prince Philip's funeral that they had some time together. Mm. What, what is the, the truth about what's going on with them? Nothing's going on with them. William knows that Harry's completely unreliable and in the thrall of a woman whom he can't abide. And that anything he says or does is going to get back to Gail or Oprah. And and uh, that it will be have the most negative spin put on it, either by Gail, Oprah, or Amid Scabies, that other study in plasticity, to go along with his with his wife Megan's study in plasticity. You know, I mean, gosh, those two. What about um, Kate then? How has her psychology and upbringing, perhaps, and her beliefs? enabled her to adapt so well? Well, everybody who knows Catherine well says she's a really sweet, kind, loving, decent person who just wants the best for everybody and everybody to be happy. And she loved Will... She, sorry, and William loved Harry. They still love Harry. They don't like what's happened they have grave reservations about this new Harry, you know, post-Megan Harry. Uh, but she will, she's very wise and very intelligent and very sensible and down to earth. And she's just a loving person, but she's also very positive and, and she's not excitable. So while Meghan and Harry are full of drama, Catherine is the absolute opposite and she's more measured. And so she will, to the extent that it's possible, have, she'll spray Diorissima in the lavatory to mask the scent. That's what she'll do. And uh, she's done it at the funeral and she'll, she'll do it doubtless in the future again and again and again. But it doesn't mean that she's stupid and it doesn't mean she doesn't see what's going on. Because my information is that she and William know exactly what's going on. And their mouths are like a mausoleum, tightly shut. They're not saying or doing anything to give, not the merchant of Venice, but the merchant of Montecito, <laughs> uh, any opportunity to take out her scales and weigh their pounds of flesh. 
which is exactly what she will do, given half an opportunity. <laughs> it is such a different world for people to fathom. And that's why we appreciate your insight, your candor, your wit, and sharing this time with us today in this beautiful castle. How long have you been in the castle? Oh, I think about six years. I moved in while it was still being done up. Right. Oh, the last year that it was being done up, I was here. I pretty much spent most of my time in it upstairs because my builder, Carlisle, who, if you've seen the show that it was, it's, ITV did, The Lady in the Castle, at Sean doing it up, and Carlisle features in it. And Carlisle rang me up one day and he said, you know, Lady C, you've really got to come down and you've got to start to show your face more because they're starting to make a poppy show of it, is how he put it. <laughs> and, you know, we need you here so that the work will be done. So I came down. There was one lavatory upstairs and one downstairs, one shower. A minimum of 15 men here on a daily basis, most of whom slept upstairs, and sometimes up to 50 on a daily basis. They didn't sleep here. But do you know, not once in the year and a bit that I was here with them, did I have to say to anybody, oh, the loose dirty or they were so wonderful, so respectful. And we also, it was, a lot of them were Jamaican, and I'm Jamaican. And, you know, it was wonderful to see uh, this spirit of community that kicked in. Uh, one of the guys is a very good cook. So, Everybody would put in, I think it was about 10 or 15 pounds a week. And then Noel would cook dinner, fabulous Jamaican dinners. Oh, every night, just the most wonderful Jamaican food. And, uh, and everybody would eat together. I didn't eat with them because I eat later than them. They would eat at about 6.30 or 7, 7.30. I don't eat until about 8.30 or 9. But I wouldn't have eaten with them in any event because I didn't want to put a damper on there. You know, if I'm there, they have to be a little bit too respectful. So I didn't want that. But, but they were, I would, we, they'd eat together and you could hear sometimes the slapping down of the dominoes after dinner. and Lovely, lovely, wonderful, wonderful vibe, a community and it, it was marvellous till the last three months when we really had to put on the pressure to get the job done. Then oh, the inner Megan came out. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't want the job to end, apparently. Well, Carlisle was worried that it would never end if... if, if the pressure wasn't put on, yeah. you know. But no, it was one, it was by and large a very happy, happy project. A lot of work, though. And it's a private castle, but you did say people can have weddings here. Is that yes. the case? Yes, people can have weddings here, corporate events, that sort of thing. It's a venue. So is there a website then for Castle Goring that people can book those oh, through? Thank you. Yes, castlegoring.com. Yeah. And how many books have you written? Oh, 
about 12, 13 or 14. I haven't, I don't really remember. Oh, and I've written two that I didn't publish. So that would be two more. I think about, I don't remember. It's about 13 or 14. And are they all on subjects royal or of other No, matters? no, 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 no. Uh, my very first book was called The Substance and the Shadow. It was a book of philosophy. Oh. My next book was uh, Lady Colin Carroll's Guide to Being a Modern Lady, <laughs> 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 which was a book on etiquette wow. in 19, published in 86, written in 85. It got great reviews. I was, I was so surprised. <laughs> I thought nobody's going to be interested in it. And if they are, they're going to knife me to death because of the subject. But no, I got a half a page in The Guardian. Can you believe it? I thought, wow. <laughs> then my, so those were nothing. Then uh, I, I wrote Down in Private in 92, The Royal Marriages in 93, uh, my autumn biography in 97 called, what is it called again? A Life Worth Living. Then The Real Diana, 1998. And then 2004, I updated it for the British edition. Then, uh, I don't even, several books. I've written books on the Queen's marriage, the Queen's marriage, Meghan and Harry. Oh, oh. And, oh, oh, a book that's really interesting that interestingly enough did, has been a slow but steady seller has been people of color and the royals. Mm. Because what people don't realize is the royal family have mixed race blood, as indeed did Diana separately from them. And so I wrote a book called The People of Color and the Royals, which was really interesting because I'm Jamaican. And I come from a multicultural, multinational, multicolored society. And, you know, it's, it's, I, and I'm the age that I've seen, because Jamaica in, in the 50s was at the forefront of race relations, hence Jamaica Farewell and all that stuff. The, the film, which you most likely haven't heard of. Harry Belafonte, huge, huge <laughs> film in the 50s. <laughs> all about an interracial relationship, which was, oh, <laughs> you know, but in Jamaica, that sort of thing happened all the time. So, and uh, yeah, I've written, I've, I, but some books, I've, one, one book that I, two, I wrote two books that were definitely nothing to do with the royals uh, as well. One was called Empress Bianca, which was about a woman who murders two of her husbands. Uh, and then I wrote uh, another book called Daughter of Narcissus, which was a serious study of narcissism at the behest and the recommendation of Dr. Erica Freeman, who's one of the world's leading psychoanalysts. Mm. And the book about the woman who murdered her husbands could never be based on anybody you know. Actually, it was based on someone I know. <laughs> <laughs> it was. It was. <laughs> I have to plead the fifth on that one then. <laughs> oh, it was. It was. Yes, it was. 
Which philosophers have inspired you then? You said you wrote a book on philosophy. Oh, let's not go down that route. It's going to be too far too heavy <laughs> for, for people. I will mm. say, though, on a light, to, to, to ease off it quite lightly, I agree with Louis XVI about Rousseau. Because Louis XVI thought that Rousseau was extremely irresponsible and that his philosophies were going to cause a whole heap of trouble, which indeed they did. And I have to say, I agree with Louis XVI, because Rousseau said, man is born free and everywhere he is in chains. Well, it sounds fabulous, but it's utter rubbish. Man is born helpless. Man is not born free. Man is born helpless. So the very first words are a total lie. And of course, Rousseau also was the most awful rake, you know, uh, didn't support his children. He abandoned his kids, didn't he? Yes, he yeah. did. He did, you know. Mm. Yeah. So you like philosophy? Yeah, I'm more into Marcus Aurelius, uh, oh, Epictetus, yes. Socrates, mm. a bit of Nietzsche. Oh, yes. Yeah. A bit of Nietzsche yeah. goes a long yeah. way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So for people watching this then, who've sat here and, and watched this for the past almost two hours, is there anything you'd like to say in conclusion to the viewers, perhaps? Well, before we say that, you didn't mention Delaroche Foucault, the maxims of Delaroche Foucault. Some of them are wonderful. I, I just point that out to you. If you like Marcus Aurelius, you like Delaroche Foucault. Didn't he write a book about prisons as well? Was it, was it Foucault or no. was it, no, no. different French author? No. Okay. No. Okay, so what do you want me to, what, what do I want to say to your viewers? Yes, in conclusion, to the people who sat here for almost well, two I have, hours. I have enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Uh, and I hope you have enjoyed it. And uh, if you have, please tune in next time that you are on. <laughs> and I will urge people to tune into your channel, Lady C, for far more detailed information and insight on the royal stories than you're going to get in the tabloid media. And they are layered with rhetorical devices, historical quotes, and the occasional humorous metaphor or simile relating to the realm of ablutions. But if you want a, a good chuckle, I recommend you go over there because I've, I've been like listening and then you'll, you'll throw one of these uh, witticisms out there. I'm just absolutely in, in hysterics and the way you do it in your refined manner. It's, it's, it's classic. So the links to Lady C's channel will be below this video as will the link to her Amazon author page. As you've heard, there is a absolute plethora of books that um, can also be followed up on if you want way more information than what you've heard today. So huge thank you for watching. Let us know in the comments what you thought about the video and huge thank you to for all the new subscribers. Um, thanks to Joe and James coming all the way from Essex today. Thanks to Mickey for being so quiet and giving me lots of kisses. And most of all, thanks to Lady C for being such a gracious um, guest. There we go. Thank you Cheers. very much. Yes. Thank you very much. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs>